0: And my weekend didn't end there. It was also so much joy to be part of this huge campaign that was organized by the Toronto Church. I don't know if you remember the big subject, the big big topic, Art lost. And for me personally, it was one of the biggest campaigns that I ever experienced being part of God's Church. I'm talking God's Church, I'm talking about CGI alone. So it was a wonderful facility, the Canadian Christians College. It was a beautiful building. And Pastor Ramakan gave a wonderful presentation and I remember this part that he mentioned about it. when you look at the globe, starting from Middle and North Africa, going to all the Middle East, going to the Asia part, which Christians call the resistant belt, It's approximately, there's like 5 million people, billion people that live there, and most of them don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will happen to these people if they die? They're gonna be really tormented in hell forever. So that was a wonderful, awesome experience. And you know, being helping a little bit, a little bit in Toronto congregation, ushering people, I came across some people that were coming and going, and I met two ladies and they were so excited about the subject, they were asking me, Can you just give me a little bit detail what this presentation will be all about? And I said, I'm sorry, I can't. You will have to wait for the presentation least just a little bit. And one lady was saying, I've been going from church to church to church and asking many pastors the same questions. I never even get one answer. All different, I get all different answers. But most of the time he says, all the pastors couldn't ask them with the question. What happened to all these people? Who died? And you know, it came to my mind that, you know, maybe it would be something good like that organized in our little small community here in Burlington. Maybe something in the spring under the same subject. Because it's a very catchy subject. Whether we realize or not. And I can tell you that there were about 200 people there. Okay? 200 people. So I would say over 100 were just the visitors. Over 100 were just the visitors who don't come regularly to the church. And many of these people, they were very hungry for God's word. They were very excited to hear God's truth. And you can see people who are deceived, they're very passionate for what they believe. So, brother, today what I'm gonna cover is something that we started last week with men's fellowship. We talked a little bit about hell. Today I have a little bit more time, so I could I could go into more detail. And you know, as I mentioned last week, that this one false doctrine is one of the most dangerous doctrines that is in the Bible. All this Christianity that is around us, they might agree and disagree on many different topics, on many different doctrines. But there is one doctrine that they all agree with. What are to this eternal hell. Isn't, isn't it amazing? They will debate, you know, the way who God is. They will debate Sunday, Saturday. They will debate God's holy and all other, all, all other things that are raised to the Bible. But they're into in agreement when it comes to it. That, you know, they all believe in existence of eternal hell. So when you go back, because of this false doctrine, especially going through the Middle Ages, Countless. Thousands of thousands of people were butchered. They died on that stake, born alive. Because people have reasons. If God can torture his people, if God can torture souls for eternity, what's wrong if you torture people for just a few minutes? That's where they find the excuse. And that's what they did killing maybe millions of people to the Middle Ages. Okay? So I think it's a very important subject that, you know, we'll address today. And as we go through it, through all these things, you know, well, I will show you basically where these doctrines come from. You know, we're not going to spend a lot, a lot of time trying to, you know, dig deep into the meaning, like you know, where it actually came from. But you know, we all know that this doctrine came not from the Bible. It didn't come from the Jewish religion. It came from the Greek philosophy. That's where it came from. That's what the Greek believed. Okay. And when this doctrine became so popular in the church, you know, you know, can you also imagine that all the first church fathers going through the first, to the second, to the third, to the fourth centuries, ninety-eight percent of them were Greek philosophers. So they were emerged into this Greek mythology and the Greek way of looking and you know at the concept of world. And they tried to implement the same Greek philosophy by trying to understand and reading the Hebrew Bible, which is a total mistake, okay? But when the, actually this doctrine became so popular, when I was short and I did my research, it became so popular under one church father, and it was the Augustine, in the early 5th century. What is so amazing about this, this church father, that he was the first one so popular in the church, but he couldn't speak Greek. So his concept of this eternal hell, eternal punishment, came from reading a Latin Bible. He couldn't check up, he couldn't go into the Greek in check the original writing of the Greek. The early church fathers, they didn't preach about hell because they couldn't justify it. They were very good at the Greek, they couldn't justify it from the Bible. He being a Latin philosopher, he find a way how to justify this hell to the Latin Bible, not to the Greek Bible. It's not so amazing, it's not, it's not amazing. I'll give you an example. Okay, just think for a moment. You know, if we translate, doesn't matter what kind of Bible, let's say that's a that's a New King James version, well let's say King James Version, okay? If you get King James Version from the original Hebrew script, Aramaic and Greek, you can just imagine how many will lose through interpretations, right? How many concept ideas will lose through interpretation, right? And now also imagine if let's say somebody will try to translate. This King James version into the Polish Bible, and making, let's say, a Polish version of King James version. Then you can see you are in big danger, right? And based on Polish Bible, come to you and try to say justify some of the doctrines. That would be insane. That's what Augustine did. Okay. and everybody accepted because I was, well, he was a very powerful speaker. He was a very influential writer, and over the time he influenced the entire church. So let me show you a passage that actually inspired him to speak about this eternal hell. And the scripture to test the one that we read today. It comes from Matthew chapter Daniel read today. Matthew chapter 25. You just go there. Matthew 25. So then he will answer them saying, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of this least of these, you did not do it to me. And verse 46, and, they will, and, and they, this will go away into, and highlight this word, everlasting, okay? Everlasting punishment by the righteous into eternal life. So he concluded, based on the scriptures, that it is, there is such a thing like eternal life, it will be obvious to assume there will be such a thing as, you know what, eternal damnation. That's how we look at the scripture. It, says, it just makes sense. And from then on, we just went and tried to make this doctrine so popular. So, first thing, before we get to the start of this concept of hell, we're going to look at this word, everlasting. Okay? We're going to look at this everlasting. So it comes from the Greek word, and, in, and you know, the Greek word, what it means is, it, the Greek word is aionios. A I O N I O S or A-I-O-N It comes actually from I, right? What's the important about understanding this Greek word, okay? Yes, it can mean something that lasts eternal, that's something that is forever, that's number one. But it can also mean that something is just age-abiding, okay? We talk about the Middle Ages, that's age-abiding. We talk about the Millennium, that's the Millennium Age. It doesn't have to be, all the time, everlasting. Which means that, you know, it doesn't have a beginning, it doesn't have an end, or it can last forever. So, it all depends. It all depends, you know, on the context of the scripture. But if you don't agree, it's so easy to just look at some words and say, I think it's everlasting, it means everlasting. Okay, Dr. Bollinger, that's what he says, he says, I, I on I-O-N, it's an H for H time. He says the duration of H is in, in diffi- indefinite and may be limited or may be extended as the context of each occurrence might demand. So there is no guarantee that always in this world of guarantee going to be everlasting. Okay? So that's the first mistake that he made and the other church fathers that follow him. That's the first mistake. Now the other part. We know about everlasting. Okay, let's talk about the punishment. Let's talk about this word hell, which in the older Bibles, you know, it's always translated hell, but it comes from three different Greek words. Three different Greek words, when you go to the Old King James Version, all these three different Greek words were all translated to one simple word, which means hell, okay? But there is a difference. So the first one, let's start from Hades. Okay, that's one of the most popular ones, right? Hades occurs 11 times in the original Greek manuscript, and Hades is also translated from the Greek word, which, which in Greek words it means shall, right? So if you, go, if you get the, the, the Hebrew understanding of the word shall in the Bible, 60 times appears in the Bible, every single time when you go to this thing, the one meaning that you will get from this one word, okay, which means grave or pit. That's it, okay? So the, 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 the Greek word equivalent, Hades, it's supposed to mean the same thing. But if you go a little deeper into Greek mythology, you might assume that this word can also mean a place of conscious torture, torment, or hard labor, right? But it's not substantiated by the it. Bible. It's just a Greek interpretation of some mythological stuff that, you know, Greek had in their own mind, in their own philosophy. So it's not warranted by the Scripture, so interpret this Greek or Hades as just just the same way like you know what the ancient Greek believed. We should go and strike to the Bible. And you know, you will open some Christian dictionaries, you know, we'll open some and they will say that, you know, it's a place of the underworld or place of state of departed spirits, okay? You will have all kind of different interpretation. So that's the one, okay? Hades. It's just a place of when 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 we die, that's where we go. We go to the grave. The next Greek word is Gehenna. It also appeared 12 times in the original Greek manuscript of the New Testament, and also in the Older Bible. Each time this word Gehenna appears, it's always translated hell, always. But it has a different meaning also. So you see, Gehenna is the only term of the three where you can use it, where you can actually understand its biblical meaning, because it comes from the Hebrew Bible, right? The Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Was the place where Baal worship of Israelites had sacrificed their children to Moloch. Click in check, and if you go to Jeremiah chapter 32 and 35, you can go there and you can see the full details, right? So, this place where they were sacrificing the children eventually became a valley, right? And this valley was called the, the Valley of the Son of Him for this reason, right? And when you translate it into Greek, it comes becomes Gehenna, okay? So, during Jesus' time, in this valley, in this Kehana, they have like a burning state, like a garbage dump. So it was burning all the time. The smoke was coming all the time. The rain and anything could not, you know, just control the fire, right? People were throwing garbage there. Dead animals. Dead criminals who died in the prisons and there was no family members who would claim the body. They were just thrown in this you know big pile of fire and of garbage, right? That's what it was. That's it. Okay. That's what it was. That's how Jews would understand what you would mention to them, Gehem. Nothing more and nothing else. And I'll give you an example in Mark, chapter Mark, that this word Gehenna is used, and you will see it, how it changed the context when you read it, okay? Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9 and verse 47 and 48. 47 and 48, and it reads here, it says, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into death. My Bible says horrifying. But It should be just translated hand. So you see the difference. And there is there is a quote where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And this one it comes all the way from Isaiah 66:24. So you can go and check it out on it's from Isaiah 66-24 and then later prophet Isaiah he prophesied the judgment that will come upon Jerusalem and that's what you know the scripture comes into the context right and why it's and why it's so important because when people read something like that it says that's a that the scriptures that prove eternal hell right so to me it's very interesting like if you believe in eternal hell and believe that you know my body is going to die and my soul is going to go to hell so my question would be the words that are there, are they spiritual or are they physical? Because if they're physical, how can they eat my eternal soul, right? But if the words are, you know, spiritual, then we have a problem, okay? that Just not talk about the doctrine at all, okay? You see what I mean? It's just a simple understanding that you put into scriptures like that. Like, how can be words eternal? Is it possible? No, whenever you have a garbage site, always it will be full of parasites and worms and birds and stuff like that. And words will multiply the words. Just, you know, as there are feed there's lots of, you know, lots of garbage to feed them. They will just multiply. That's what they will do. So, that, so you know, and also this, you know, this word, like, you know, when you, when you go and look into, let's say, some of that Greek mythology, they'll say, like, it's a place of a burning hell of souls and something like that. But it's not. It shouldn't be not. The Greek philosophy, it shouldn't be bring into the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. So there are two concepts we struggling as a Christian, even today, you know, thousands of years later, you know, is the Greek concept of seeing the world and the Hebrew concept of seeing the world, right? And we should be careful of that. Because it's a huge difference. You know, we'll talk about this a little bit later. So, as I said, this Gehenna word is also mentioned 12 times, and you know, if you want a scriptures later, I can give it to you. I'm not gonna go to all the single scripture. The last one, the Hebrew word. The, the Greek word, that appears as a hell, okay, it's called Tartarus, and this word only appears, one in the Bible, and if you go to 2nd Peter, I will show you where it appears, 2nd Peter chapter 2. 2, Peter chapter 2, and verse 4, where it says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, so it's your call how we want to interpret this word. What I would say to anyone who tried to defend the doctrine of how just based on this one word, I would say, you know, you can't build a doctrine based on one scripture. And this one only Greek word only appears one in the New Testament. So you don't have enough knowledge, you know, being 2,000 years away from the original, whatever, Greek concept of the Greek language to just justify what it might what mean. Me. We can speculate. Yes, I have my own interpretation to this verse, right, to the scripture but it's just my speculation. That's it. That's what it is. So as I said, last week during this campaign, at the end of the session, of the presentation we English, it was a great presentation, you know, by Pastor Ramaker. We had a Q&A session, and many people were compassionate. first few people came, they were very thankful. They said it was such a clear presentation. Now they, you know, got all these things, you know, in their mind. So understandable. So clear. So brilliant. There was one lady that came, and you can tell, she was very passionate. He says that, Pastor Ramakan, you misconstrued the word of God. How can you say? You know, the scripture says that you know when it, after that there is judgment. And she was going scripture, you know, a few scriptures, quoting a few scriptures. And he said, What about the Lazarus and the, and the rich men? What about that scripture, right? And I'm thinking, like, what about it? Hmm. But this is the lady, she's interpreting the God, the, you know, the, the God's word to the Hebrew mind. And that's how she was taught. That's how I was taught when I was in the school. That's why, right, Greek mind. It's all the educational system in Western society is influenced by, you know, by the, by the, by the Greek mind. Democracy comes from Greece, it didn't come from the Hebrew Bible. Okay, the way we see them, the worst today, all this, you know, Western capitalism was all influenced by the Greek philosophy. So that's how we read the Bible and we try to, you know, look at this Bible from the, from the Greek uh, kind of like perspective. Which is, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't. So, I thought it's very interesting. Like, you know, I talked to some brethren later. You know, how would you interpret this story or this parable? Because some people say it's a real story, and some people say it's a parable. We'll have to find out. we are have study today. But, people, how would you answer it? And there are some people who've been in the church for a long time, and they are still struggling with this parable, the rich man, or the Lazarus and the rich man. And they couldn't answer it. So, I said, we'll spend some time today trying to go to this through this story or parable we'll see later, which one is it but let me tell you something, when I was doing my research what I found that most people who believe in hell, this scripture coming from Luke 16 will be either number one or number two scripture which they they would quote to support they believe in eternal hell. I found it amazing this scripture is so important trying to prove something that it can be only a parable, okay? So let's go to Luke 16. Let's go to Luke 16. And let's read the parable first. It starts in verse 19, okay? Luke 16, verse 19. And just follow with me slowly as we're going to read through this story. So there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And first, sumptuously very well. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his feet, desiring to be fed with the crowns which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip his tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to pass, pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from, from there pass to, to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them. If they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said no father Abraham but if one goes but if one goes to them from the dead they will repent but he said to them if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither they will be persuaded to the one who raised from the dead it's a very convincing story people die people communicate to each other okay they die but they're still conscious so how would we, how would we explain the story? So let we have to ask our first. We have to ask ourselves: Is it a real story, or it is a parable? Okay. What would you say? What would be your opinion? See, let me mention. Let me make it clear: It's the only passage in the New Testament. Okay, the only part of the scriptures in, in the New Testament that supposedly shows consciousness between death and resurrection. No one else. It's only give. Okay. Point number two. In this passage alone, there is not a one single reference to our soul or our spirit of man. So keep this in mind, okay? Keep this thing in mind. Now, just on the surface, we just look at this parable, okay? People who believe in you know hell. Is it possible for a person to go to hell or a person to go to heaven? Is it possible to communicate between each other? Most people who believe hell will say, you can't, you're in heaven, you can't communicate with people in hell, and it's the opposite. But in this story, it says they can communicate. So that's, you know, number one. How can those in heaven look up and see people burning in hell? Just think for a moment. You have your children, okay? Let's say your children are not of age, and something happened to them and they died. And you know, and you are the part of the first resurrection, yes? You are the son of God. You are the daughter of God. And you're up there, in, you know, supposedly being in heaven, right? And you and you and you look at your daughter how, or your son how, he's suffering in hell. How would you enjoy? How would you enjoy your stay in heaven? Would it be a pleasurable experience? I don't think so. Now the other point: Can they hear the screams? According to this you know, story, they can hear the one screaming and the other. Right? Is it possible? Is it really possible to do this? Oh! And now the other point that I want to mention, just on the surface, how large is Abraham's large cousins, okay? How large is it? How many people can contain? Five, ten, millions, billions? I don't know. Like, you know. How large is it? You know, you <laughs> but that's what people believe, right? And you know, it doesn't say in this story that somebody goes to heaven or to hell. No. Abraham's who's, we'll come to this a little bit later. So, let's figure it out, once and for all. If this is a story, it is a parable, okay? Let's just go back. A few pages. Just go back. Chapter 15. Okay? And it says, it starts here with the first parable, right? It says, the parable of the lost sheep. And the point of this parable comes from, you know, verse 7, is what it says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Was this a real story where there are actually ninety-nine sheep and one get lost? No, it was just a parable. It even says here, it is a parable, right, of the lost sheep. Okay, let's go to the next one. The parable of the lost coin. And the point of the story comes in verse 10, which says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents." Well, Christ is trying to bring the same point, right? Let's go on. The next the parable of the last son. We, we all know this parable, right? But the same conclusion comes in verse, verse 24, where it says, For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be so it says, that was another parable. Then it says, the parable of the unjust pure. That's, verse, that's chapter 16. Parable, 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 parable. Okay? The point of this parable is it verse, it, it verse 19. In verse 13 it says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mama. So that was the point of Christ's next part Now we come to this story, and he doesn't say, you know, anything about that is supposed to be part of. Maybe yours, but he doesn't say in mine. And you know, I did a research, and you know, men in manuscript that came to all the way up to the seventh centuries, even some of them in the 10th centuries, they will have that at the beginning, and Jesus said another part of and later somebody would just remove it. Because somebody was very biased, trying to support this doctrine of hell. Okay? So let's go to the beginning. Chapter. Uh, let's go to chapter 15. Okay? We're gonna get a more you know context before we go to the parable again. Chapter 15, okay? Let's see what Jesus had to deal with at the time. Chapter 15, verse 1. Look what happened. Jesus is preaching, okay. Jesus is having you know great time, and look what happened. And all the tax collectors and all the sinners drew near to him to hear. Okay, all the sinners were despised by Pharisees and Sadducees. They all come to hear Jesus' Christ. In verse two, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, "This man receives sinners and eats with them." Those was the problem of Jesus. How can he associate with sin? They were so righteous. They despised the poor people. They said, you know what? They were, they were calling themselves blessed because they were rich. And you see all these poor people, right? And Jesus comes and he eats with them. He helps them, okay? He spends time with them. So they couldn't handle it in their mind. They couldn't handle it. So just go to verse chapter 16. That's where the story of this parable starts, okay? But we'll, we'll pick it up at verse 14, okay? Go to the beginning. And he says the same thing. Now the Pharisees, ah, we get another description of Pharisees who were what, lovers of money. Also heard all these things and they derided him. And he said to them, "You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God." Ah, so we get another information what Christ was dealing when it comes to this parable. So we know that they were lovers of money, they liked to justify themselves before the man. There are many, many examples in the New Testament, and especially they despised the poor people, and the tax collectors. Okay? So that's the context. And you know, I can also give you, you can go to Luke chapter 13, I'll show you another scripture. Luke 13 and verse 28. Luke 13 and verse 28, it says, Christ says to them, He says, "There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God." And He says, "And you yourself trust them?" So that's how Christ is trying to baffle them all the way along, you know, in the in the stories of the Gospels. So let's go to verse 19 again. I think it's very important, you know. Christ gave us some clues. He's a part of so us. He's trying to teach us something. He's not speaking officially to the Pharisees. Right? But he's giving us clues. Okay, so, read verse 19. One more time. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, who was dressed in fine linen in the Bible? Mostly high priests, right? When you come to Scarlet, rich people too, royalty. By fine linen, mostly priests were, and especially high priests on the Day of Atonement, okay? So, that's one of the clues. And they lived a luxurious life. High priests were very rich people in Jesus' times. They were, ah, they were aristocrats of the society back then. They were the royalty. They were the multi-billionaire people. And Christ says here, they lived a luxurious life. Okay, let's go to verse 28. Most people miss this clue, okay? Most people absolutely miss this clue. He says, for, for I had five brothers. So they were leaders of what nation? The Jewish nations, okay? So they came from Judah. How many brothers Judah have? Five. Okay, five brothers. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Isaac, as Five brothers which all came from Jacob, first wife okay? You know, Christ could just give like five brothers. He could give like three brothers and six sisters, but he gave five brothers. So you know exactly, you know, if you're a Jew, and you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee, he'll get the message, okay? Fun linen, nice, nice dress, five brothers. He was addressing the top leader of the Jewish nation back then, okay? Get more interesting. Let's look what we can find about this poor man. Okay, it says in verse 20, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus is not a Hebrew name, Lazarus in Hebrew, you know what it means? It means Elizier. So I don't know my pronunciation, but you know, I can E L I E Z E R. Okay. And you know who was this guy? When you go all the way back to, Gen- to the Genesis book of Genesis, you know who was Eliezer. He was a faithful Gentile servant who served Abraham, and he even came to a point, moment, to a point that Abraham, as he was waiting for this promise of God that he will have his own descendants, okay, he was willing to give all this inheritance to this one slave of his, faithful Gentile. Gentile servant, whose name was Alzheimer, okay, and it was the same guy who eventually went and got a wife for Isaac okay? you can find the story, it's in Genesis 15, that's the story about, you know this this gentleman, and then you can go to chapter 24 and see all the story about finding a wife for Isaac so it's amazing it's amazing when Christ gives us a little clue and you know, and instead of reading through this thing, through the interpretations of the Hebrew Bible we would rather apply the Greek mythology to read what it means here from this bottom. Okay? So we know who the rich guy is. We know who this poor guy is. Okay? What's the bottle going on? What's happening here? Okay? And then we know this beggar, he's desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Okay? That's not the language that it used only one once he here, okay? Let's go to Matthew chapter 15. Hold your place here, okay, because we won't come back. Matthew chapter 15. I want to give you all the background, okay? And I want to give you... It's always better to interpret Bible through the Bible than to try to interpret Bible to some human imagination or human mythology, okay? Matthew 15 and verse 21. Look what happened here. Similar story. Okay? Not a similar story, but something. Then Jesus went out from there and departed the region of Tyre and Sid. Okay? And behold, a woman of Canaan, a Gentile woman, came from that region and cried out to him, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is surely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciple came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cried after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except for the last sheep of the house of Israel. And she said, Look at this Gentile woman. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She came and worshipped him. The other Jewish people have a problem to do this with Jesus. Okay, His disciple didn't have a full trust in him yet. But he, but he answered and said, It's not good to take the children' children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Don't you find it offensive? Jesus would send a statement like that. And he said, Yes, Lord. Even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. You see the similarities? What is Jesus trying to address in this parable of the rich man and, the, and this poor man, Lazarus? Just go back to it. Luke chapter 16, ok, so you see the stories, this, in Matthew 15, this poor man, this poor woman, she likes Jesus to heal his daughter. right, she's desperate, but she has this faith, faith from heart, and it doesn't matter what Jesus says, she knows who he is, and she's ready to worship him, the Jewish people have problems, the Gentile people come to Jesus, ok, and, you know, she's got a believable humble spirit. That's what many Jewish people felt at the time, to recognize who Jesus was.
1: And this woman was willing to be a
0: spiritual beggar. And she wanted just to, you know, she just wanted to rely on every single crown that falls from the table. She was happy just to get whatever is falls from the master table. That's why she's happy, content, and humility, ready to worship Christ. So Christ goes on here in this part of Luke 16. We get the same pictures, right? This poor man, he's just sitting at the gate. He just wants, he just, he just wants every single crime that falls. He just wants to be satisfied. He's thirsty. He's hungry. And there's no one to feed him, okay? So in the other words, you know, the Jewish leaders, they thought of the Gentiles as dogs. They didn't want to go and spread the good news. They didn't want to teach the Gentile, you know, what God is all about. They were hoarding the blessing just for themselves. They were rich. They were a luxurious life. notice all poor people, including Gentiles, there were just dogs in their eyes. Okay? So, let's go a little bit farther here in Luke 16. And it says here, So it was that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died, and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he left up his eyes, and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And it's as I said, it doesn't the scriptures doesn't say that Lazarus spirit went to heaven to meet with God. It doesn't say it How can we interpret that somebody is in heaven or that somebody's in hell? We can't. The scripture just doesn't give us this permission, okay? So what is this, you know? Why would Jews all the time they would say like, God is my father? Most of the time they will say they were probable. Abraham is my father. And I can claim that I'm descended of Abraham. I have my papers here. My genealogy goes, and I can, you know, have my genealogy all the way to Abraham. I'm an Ab- Abraham child. You know, we have Moses, you know. I wanna I wanna obey Moses, I don't want to obey Jesus. So this battle was going on all the time. And I will show you examples, some of them examples of them. If you go to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. Matthew 3 and verse 9 and this time I will read to you from the New Living Translation (laughs) Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9 it says Matthew 3 and verse 9 John the Baptist says don't just say to each other we are saved for we are descendants of Abraham that's what they thought we are saved, the descendants of Abraham. doesn't matter what we do, how we live our lives. What we believe, what we don't believe. We are Abraham's children. God will protect us. So he's saying, uh, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children for Abraham from this very stones. That's what John Barthol was trying to, to show them. Right? Genealogy doesn't matter in the end. We have to have this faith. And they were lacking this faith constantly. Let's go to John. I'll show you another one. Hold your space here, okay? All the time. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and verse 34. Actually, it starts with verse 33. They answer him. We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. Really? They're under the Roman occupation right now, okay? They went through so many different, you know, Occupation order under the and says, "Oh, we are never in bondage. We're Abraham's children, right? How can you say you will, make, you will, be, you will, you will be made free?" And Jesus answered them He says, "More I shall say to you: Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave, and a slave does not abide in the, in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed." And they just disregard Christ's message. They still didn't grab it. They still didn't get it. what Christ was trying to teach them. Just go back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And in verse 46. See, now talking about Moses, right? They were always saying, We are Abraham's children. or we obey Moses, right? So he says, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe Moses and he's writing, how will you believe me and how will you believe my words? And in the end of this parable, when he comes at the end of this parable here in Luke, you know, this, this rich man says, you know, oh, and, and, and the point at the end is that even if somebody comes from the dead, and Jesus was saying, I'll be resurrected, I will come from the dead, he says, they will still not believe in me. And that's the story, brethren, of this parable that we're here right here. The self-righteous, unbelieving Jews, to consider themselves to be priestly class, the rulers of the next world. That's what they considered themselves. They thought that Messiah is going to come, he's going to keep the Romans out. And there will be the kings and priests in God's kingdom. And God is saying, you know what? The last will be first, the first will be last. And what, what God is trying to tell them in this parable, and he says, the great God will exist. And you know, if you do know, if you know history, how many Jewish people today accept Jesus Christ? Not many. There are just few minorities here and there. But most of the time, when you mention Jesus Christ, they're in opposition. In opposition, Christ is cursed person for them. They don't want to believe in him, they don't want to hear about him. Everywhere, it doesn't matter where you go, from Israel to America. They just don't want to believe that. Leaders of no leaders, they just hate Jesus Christ. But oh, there will be there will come a time, that eventually. They'll get their chance, right? And you know, we shouldn't be shocked because Matthew twenty one forty three, if you go there, Matthew twenty one forty three. Jesus told them, he prophesied a long time ago. Matthew 21, 43, it says, he told them directly, he says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation, bearing the fruits of it. They were not bearing the fruits of God required. So we see in the long run, as I said, this kingdom was taken away from them. Christ was resurrected, Christ still tried to preach them. and, you know, 40 years later or so came a total destruction to the, you know, Jewish capital, Jerusalem, in 70 AD. And later on, in, in 135, there was another uprising. The entire city was totally destroyed. Not a single Jew could live in this city for many, 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 many decades. And that's the Jew of God that came into fulfillment, whatever Christ was telling you in all these parables. But we know plan of God, Right? Before I go, I want you to go to Romans. Because that's where Paul is speaking about the future of the Israelites. In Romans chapter 18, 11, Romans chapter 11, Paul is writing to Romans and he is addressing the issue of the Israelites. And in verse 11, he says, Romans 11, in verse 11, he says, I say that have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fault, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fault is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more? Their fullness. And just skip down to verse uh, 15, which says, For if they are being cast away, is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance be of life from the dead? These amazing scriptures. And skip to verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so, in verse 26, and so, all Israel will be saved. So my question is, if these people are tormented for hell forever, how can all Israel will be saved in the end? Is, it, is that possible or maybe Gods just gonna torment him for let's say 3,000 years and then he's gonna raise him up and says now we can live eternally. it just doesn't make sense right it doesn't go with the with the scriptures it doesn't go with this with this book so as I said at the beginning brother right, we have to be very careful because we live in a society that is so dominant society that lives to the Greek interpretations of everything our you know life our social life, even Christianity is interpreted. You know, this book is interpreted to the Greek eye, not to the Hebrew eye. For example, for Greeks, like Bradley Asian explained last week during the Bible study, Greek they thought that they have immortal soul. That was something to cherish, okay? Their physical body did not matter. So they either abuse it totally, okay? Or that you know they put the, their bodies, they subject their body to the sin, because they said body is not it. You know, I have immortal soul. One, one day, I just can't wait to get my soul escape this prison that we call their body. Now, Jewish, on the other hand, okay, Jewish people they'll say like the wholeness of everything. They didn't see the separation of soul and body. They care about their body, and you know, Paul is saying the same thing in the Corinthians. When right. so we have to be careful too, because our body is the temple, of the holy spirit. So we have the same concept. Okay, maybe the New Testament is written in Greek. But with the Hebrew mind, that's what that, that's what the difference. Is. If you go to Second Thessalonians chapter chapter five, I just want to close here with one scripture here, and I just want to explain the I just want to explain the difference or the relationship between soul and spirit. It brings so much confusion. Okay, Second Thessalonians chapter five, and I'll go to verse twenty-three at the end of this letter. All right, he says. Now may the God of peace himself, and look how he writes here, sanctify you completely, and may you whole, you see, and may you whole, and he mentioned it. Okay, spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are Greek at the time, you'll see that's nonsense, what he's writing here. But because he was a Hebrew, he understands the Hebrew talk. He says, the wholeness of you is everything, combined together. What's the difference? When you go in the scripture and study the difference between spirit, soul, and body. We know that spirit comes from the Hebrew word, ruach, okay? It's just like a wing. It's like a breath of life. When Adam was born, God just gave him this breath of life. That's what it is. Soul, okay? So what is soul? It comes from the Hebrew word, nephesh, okay? If you go, we don't have to go. But in Leviticus 17 and 11, this whole chapter is dedicated to blood. But it's worded this way about soul. It's worded this way: for the life of the flesh is in the nephesh. So the life of the flesh is in the blood, and the blood is translated soul. Okay? You see the difference? That's the Hebrew explanation of it. Okay? And what is body? We know what is body. So let's look at this. In a human terms, okay, like I said, to understand spiritual stuff, sometimes we need to understand the physical stuff. For our body to be you know, healthy and you know, to exist at a normal human level, we need the blood, the blood circulations in our system. Because blood circulates everything that our, every single cell needs, from oxygen to nutrients, bringing good stuff in, taking the bad stuff away. That's what we need. You we know, need always, constantly, always, fresh supply of blood into our cells. While this circulation is disturbed, or we don't have enough of this blood, guess what happened to our body? We just died. Okay? If we died, it means our blood is dead too, and, us, 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 and our our body and our soul is dead. What happened to the spirit? What is spirit? Like we said, it's like a wind. Like you know, Jesus is writing to talking with Nicodemus in, in John chapter three. He says, "We can see, we feel this effect. When God created Adam." He breathed to Him into, you know, the Spirit of life. So like we here operate, okay? We have our bodies, we have our blood. But if somebody would just cut the, the supply of oxygen into our mouth, how long would we live? Just a matter of minute, maybe two. So the same thing happened one day, when God will cut the supply of His Spirit into us with dead bodies. So what it means, it means basically that our body, our soul and our body will be dead and in grave, And the God's Spirit, we'll just go back to God. That's it, what it is. There's nothing confusing about it. Like people try to, you know, believe in some mortality of the soul and we never, would you my believe. So, right now, I hope this study will be a little helpful. And, you know, as I was, as I was, you know, observing all these events that happened during this campaign, and it just came to me, I noticed, people are hungry. People are thirsty for the Word of God. They want explanation. And you know, and on the other hand, we are so blessed to have this knowledge. And you know, you young people, to know this stuff, the people are struggling. People can't find it. It's not like a common knowledge that you can go anywhere and just just know what it is. We need to find a way how to pass this knowledge. This generation that is outside this you know the streets, they are just totally lost. We have to find a way how to communicate. And I think to do this we need to be busy. We need to get home and, and we you know, we have to become serious about the word of God. We have to study tell it diligently, day and night. You know, go into deeper meaning of some words. Don't just assume what people say, don't just assume what other people interpret. But we should know what God says to us, to this Lord, to this Hebrew mind, not to the Greek mind. May God bless you all, have a great son